This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, April 5th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. One great fear of lawmakers is that their constituents will have access to clear, easy-to-understand information about their voting records. On the spending front, Jonathan Bidlack of the Coalition to Reduce Spending says lawmakers themselves don't always understand the budgetary implications of their own votes. We talked about the president's budget and the hope that springs eternal that a divided Congress could mean less federal spending. A project that you run, SpendingTracker.org, follows uh, individual members of Congress and how much spending they vote for uh, and breaks it up by, you know, whether or not that spending was eventually uh, enacted. And I've noticed that uh, in looking through the data for uh, my members of Congress in the in the House and Senate, that if that that member is in a party that's out of power, they quite often vote for a lot less spending than uh, they otherwise might. So in some red states with spots of blue, you'll have a, a Democratic representative, or at least recently would have a Democratic representative who would by far vote for less spending uh, than his Republican colleagues in the House. So just so we're clear, why exactly is that? Uh, obviously, uh, I think there's this myth that exists that you know one party wants to spend a lot and the other party wants to uh, wants to spend a little. And the reality is that generally speaking, both parties uh, pretty much want to spend a lot, and they might have differences in terms of you know how they prefer to pay for it, you know taxation versus borrowing, for example. But uh, really, what it comes down to is priorities. And so, uh, you know, when you have one party leadership advancing their priorities, you're going to f- tend to see the other party perhaps being a little less willing to. Uh, uh, to vote for some of that spending. And that's not to say, of course, that we don't have very significant uh, bipartisan agreement on uh, spending a whole bunch on a whole lot of things. And so, you know, whether you're talking about Pentagon spending or the farm bill or or what have you, you have these priorities that certainly don't break down along partisan lines where uh, vast majorities in both parties are willing to support them. And that's actually why you'll see that if, if you sort of do a comparison of, uh, you know, the Democrats versus the Republicans on our site, you'll see that there tends not to be too much of a, of a difference uh, in the sense that the median Republican looks very very similar in terms of the amount of spending they vote for, uh, you know, relative to the to the median Democrat. And why don't people know that? Why is that? Why does that appear to be a secret? Because I because I remember many libertarians years ago saying, "Well, see, Democrats want government to grow at four percent a year, and Republicans want it to grow at three percent a year." But you're saying that's not necessarily even fair. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons. I mean, one is just you know sort of blind partisanship and and people assuming that you know their team is is necessarily better than the other team. The other the other fact is that you know it's really difficult to get this information in any sort of uh, in easy to digest format. I mean, the budget process itself is very complex. Most members of Congress don't even know what the budgetary implications are of, of every piece of legislation that they vote on, which has actually been you know, one of the ways in which this tool has been really helpful from the standpoint of the Hill is just having uh, members and their staff being able to visualize what that spending trajectory looks like over, say, the next five or 10 years. Uh, and so, you know, the process itself is, is just really um, difficult to understand. And so, you know, the average person is not going to exactly go and decide to comb through you know, uh, hundreds of pages of, of PDFs put out by the Congressional Budget Office, and they're certainly not going to go and and take all of that information and cross-reference it with the voting records of their their own representatives. And so uh, that's, I think, a big part of it. You know, we've tried very much to, uh, 
you know, essentially bring sunlight to that process, but also uh, build these track records in as objective a way as possible using this objective government data to be able to say this is what this is what the record is of, of your various members of Congress. And you know, I think that's incredibly powerful. When I, when we first started going down this road and and creating this project, I actually had a meeting with a, a chief of staff on the Hill at the time who who quipped that you know he hoped that uh, I had so- someone to start my car every morning. And and, and of course he was being tongue in cheek, but the idea was that the thing that members fear the most is is you know their constituents being able to get access to easy to understand information about their records and the process itself is set up uh, to make it very difficult for them to do so. The president's budget has landed in Congress and as it always does it lands with a thud uh, whether you're a Democrat or Republican how do you evaluate what was what was in that and some of the assumptions that went into it? Yeah, I think the president's budget was, you know, what we might have expected. I mean, you know, there are there are pretty significant uh, ideas for reductions in the non-defense discretionary space. Uh, you know, there's generally a call for a pretty significant increase in the in the defense space, particularly in the the form of the overseas contingency operation budget, which is essentially outside of the the base DoD funding. Uh, and then in the entitlement space, there are sort of you know ideas for reform. There's been a lot of sort of poor reporting, but I think there was some good stuff with respect to uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Um, but, you know, as, as you said, I mean, you know, these budgets are basically just serve as blueprints. I mean, even when they do pass, they're non-binding. And so uh, it's, it's you know, I think we perhaps pay more attention to them uh, than we otherwise should. But it's always good to get a sense of where people's priorities are. Uh, so, you know, I mean, a, a lot of good, uh, certainly some bad. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, as you said, you know, pretty much uh, pretty much irrelevant in the grand scheme of things from a from a practical, you know, is this what's going to happen standpoint. There are a, a lot of people who, you know, spending hawks who care about trying to get to some sort of rational. Uh, <laughs> are there level spending, of spending hawks anymore? <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm trying to be optimistic, I suppose. But uh, to the extent that that spending hawks actually do exist, mm-hmm. um, are they? Should they be heartened by the fact that we now have a Democratic-controlled House, a Republican-controlled Senate? Yeah, I think that's the uh, that's the sixty four thousand dollar question for uh, people who might remember that game show. I mean the 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 question. I mean, you know, there's sort of evidence in the past. I mean, if you look to uh, you know the '90s with with you know a Democratic president Bill Clinton and a Republican dominated uh, legislature, or frankly even the last uh, six years of the Obama administration where you had a Democratic president and sort of the the Tea Party wave on the Republican side. So there's an argument to be made that divided government tends to lead us to better outcomes, and I think that's a you know that that's a reasonably strong argument um but of course let's not kid ourselves i mean it, it's not like the you know uh democrats who who came into the house are are you know committed to reducing the, the size and scope of government and so they're certainly not going to share our perspective from the standpoint of wanting to reduce spending uh so the real question is whether or not that sort of um you know competitive dynamic between the two party leaderships ends up trumping uh, if you will, pardon the pun, the the uh, feeling on both sides of of you know wanting to spend more, and you know unfortunately the the argument against the sort of historical data, if you will, is that you know both parties are willing to come together and spend more on their priorities rather than force themselves to to bind their own hands, and you've seen that recently in the in the Pentagon context, for example, where uh, you know Republicans came out and said you know we we'd like seven hundred fifty billion dollars for uh, for Pentagon the Pentagon budget. 
And then, you know, Democrats came out and said, well, you know, no, we're not going to do that. But, you know, we'd probably be okay with 733, which is, you know, just pretty much as much a, a, a made up number. And so, uh, you know, maybe we end up getting a getting a slightly lower number, but it's not like we're going to have some dramatic change in uh, in the level of in that level of spending. Uh, given the fact that we've now topped, you know, a, a nice big round number again in terms of uh, federal debt in the in the 20 trillion range. Um, what appetite is there today for some sort of constitutional break on spending or a debt? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that, you know, that's an idea that we've pushed pretty aggressively. I know the Cato Institute has obviously done a lot of work on this issue and a number of sort of uh, fiscally conservative organizations. I think, you know, people who study this for a living and, and sort of engage in this work, you know, understand that that you have to have some sort of, um, you know, process control, some sort of fiscal rule that, that restrains the growth of government. You know, this idea that we're going to end up just electing a few new people and we're going to get dramatically different outcomes uh, is, is, I think, you know, pie in the sky. But of course, all, you know, to get to the point where, where, you know, you have some sort of fiscal rule that actually works, whether or not that's a, you know, a Swiss debt break or, or, you know, maybe just restricting growth and spending to say 3% a year, like Chris Edwards here has, has called for, um, you know, you still have to have uh, members of Congress who feel compelled to abide by those restrictions. And, th you know, that ultimately requires uh, a populace that's sort of demanding uh, fiscal responsibility. And so, um, you know, it can be tempting sometimes, I think, to to just assume that if we just got the right rule in place, that that it would change everything. And, you know, sure, you know, if we pass some sort of constitutional restriction, you know, whether, whether that's, uh, you know, some sort of balanced budget amendment or other fiscal rule, or we go down the road of, you know, convention of states or what have you, um, you know, at the end of the day, it still requires, um, you know, you need to get to the point where people are, feel so strongly about that idea that they're willing to go and and vote into office people who, who um, you know, support that idea and vote out of office people who oppose those ideas. And, you know, I don't know that we're, that we're there yet. And it's, and it's why, you know, I, I think, you know, our spending tracker project is an important part of that just because it, it sort of educates people and so can perhaps bring some of these ancillary benefits that, uh, you know, creates a, an environment where perhaps in the future, uh, you know, we have a more conducive environment to, uh, to implementing some of these fiscal rules like you described. There is a part of federal spending that is not officially a part of the federal budget, and it's known as overseas contingency operations. Mm -hmm. And basically, it allows the Pentagon to spend, in a sense, off the books uh, for uh, supporting troops who are in harm's way. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but the spending clearly is an attempt, uh, in many ways, to circumvent the budget caps that we've had in place for several years. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, obviously, uh, whenever you, this is a good example, whenever you create some sort of restraint, uh, creative people are going to attempt to circumvent that restraint. And, uh, you know, the the OCO budget, as it's called, which, you know, is something that's existed for, for quite some time, um, became sort of the favored vehicle for uh, increasing the Pentagon's budget, you know, outside of the uh, the base budget that is that is constrained by the by the budget caps, and so, 
you know, yeah, it's a big problem. And it's a problem also because that spending doesn't get offset. I mean, when we think about what's likely to happen in the coming months or, you know, between now and the end of the year, there are a number of fiscal flashpoints that we're looking at. And one of those is, you know, what to do with those Budget Control Act caps. They're expiring in a couple of years. There's going to be a push again to raise them this year. And, you know, there's a, a question, an open question about what should fiscal conservatives be looking for in any sort of um, you know, reasonable deal. And I think there are a couple of a couple of things to think about. One is, you know, <laughs> whatever increases they implement should be should be offset elsewhere. Uh, you know, offsets are very important. Uh, you know, can we get some sort of budget process reforms? Uh, you know, that uh, you know, again, can be beneficial and perhaps put some more tools in the toolkit of legislators to be able to face some of these hard decisions in the future. Um, and ultimately, I mean, I think what a lot of organizations are looking for is, you know, wanting to see those caps being being pushed off into the future, being extended into the future. I mean, if you look at, you know, since since you know the the uh, the fiscal crisis and or the financial crisis in in two thousand eight two thousand nine. Um, we saw spending go down in back-to-back -back years for the first time since the Korean War. And part of the answer as to why that happened is because we had these budget caps in place that created an expectation of where spending should be. And so even though, sure, you know, those caps were raised multiple times and, and they weren't perfectly abided by, I would argue having that expectation is, is far more, uh, you know, creates a far better situation than not having that expectation. And, and so with those caps getting closer and closer to experts, now, uh, you know, I think it's important that uh, that they are extended in the future so that we continue to have that expectation and and you know perhaps put a little bit more of a check on on you know both parties' willingness to just kind of spend at will and uh, and not actually have any sort of any restraint on their actions. Jonathan Bidlack is president of the Coalition to Reduce Spending. We spoke last week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.